Hi, this is Adam, normally the host, but right now I'm wearing my producer hat. I'm just letting you know that we have had a technical difficulty with the sound recording, which has now been fixed in the edit you're about to hear. But um, this is why you may have been given one or two downloads by your podcasting service. So apologies for that, but at least we've solved the problem now. Hi everyone and welcome to Not The Gear, the photographer's podcast. Uh, we're very pleased that you can join us and uh, hope you're staying safe in these difficult times. Today I'm with Dan Lee in New York and we're joined by JR of Outtex.com uh, who's going to tell us a lot about his camera protection system. I, I know that some of you love listening to me talking about hiding in your ears or the latest news of the day but there isn't a lot of news, so I think it'd be better if we just got to know JR. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, we founded the company way back in 2010. Uh, it was really something that was born out of necessity. I was an enthusiast photographer and felt like there was something uh, that that we could solve a real problem. Sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm not I don't use the product, so I'm not actually entirely familiar with it. The only housing I've ever seen a camera on was a giant sort of glass well, box with a, one side of it was glass. That is, that's not what you're talking about, is it? Not at all. The Altex housings are a bit like a wetsuit or a condom, if you will. But it's, it's like a wetsuit or a condom for your camera. And the beauty of that is that it's lightweight. It adds virtually no bulk uh, or weight to your gear. It can be used with multiple brands, multiple cameras, multiple lenses. And it's ribbed for their pleasure? It is ribbed for their pleasure. And, and their control, which is the other point that I was going to make, is that unlike the hard cases and the hard housings that are configured for specific buttons, this housing can accommodate any camera and allows the user to then access buttons, knobs, controls, etc., independent of the camera that they're using. And because the engineering has gone into making it a tactile reach, a rich component, it allows also good feedback. And so it becomes one, if you will, and allows you to use it in different environments. It uses optical glass in front and on the back so that you still have the professional results, arguably better than some of the hard cases that you're still paying thousands of dollars for, but shooting through acrylic. We only use optical glass. Um, but like I was saying, uh, because it's so lightweight and easy to transport, allows you to use it in any environment. So if I'm on the beach, if I'm in a pool, if I'm in the sand, if I'm dune bugging, etc., there's lots of different uses. You can use it with multiple devices. You can. In, in fact, we, we have users using it with film cameras. We have people using it with mirrorless, and we have people using DSLRs. We have customers from Phase One, Hasselblad, you know, so that's part of the beauty is that many uh, photographers or cinematographers, if you will, aren't 
married to one particular camera or one particular lens. They want the flexibility of being able to enclose their gear in whatever shoot, whatever project they're working on. And one of the benefits that I found with it is I shoot with I shoot with multiple systems. So I've um, I've got a Sony camera. I've still got one kicking around somewhere. I've got the uh, I've got Lumix, um, and I've got um, uh, Nikon the, the Nikon Z series. So I, I just have one or two cases, and they fit every single camera. It's, it's great. So I can swap between um, camera systems really easily using using our techs. And that was one of the big benefits. And that's how you got me as a customer. Um, was purely from that aspect alone. I didn't have to go and invest a, a crap ton of money in in lots of different um, uh, in lots of different camera bodies for lots of different cameras and lots of different lenses. It was really super easy for me to uh, and to uh, reduce my overheads as well because you know you, you use that case for a number of years and it really doesn't matter so much if um, you're going to stay on the same platform. But as soon as you move off it, that camera case that you just invested two thousand, three thousand dollars in then becomes worthless overnight and nobody really wants to buy a second-hand case online either because they really don't know how good the seals are going to be how much it's been abused all that kind of thing so um from my point of view as, as, as being a, a customer now an ambassador for, for, for our tech it, um, it really helped me with with um uh, getting around to some of that price point pain and so i've got a, got a bit of a question here just as a, again an outsider but this sounds incredibly rational why aren't other housings like this i know i sound like some sort of terrible um the infomercial how come you thought of it no that that is a good question i think it's it's really a, a matter of necessity and we do have some patents associated with the seal that we've created where the housing material creates the seal with the optical glass uh, there are what I would call two ends of the spectrum in the market. So you, you've asked about the market. So I describe it in the following way. And this is the world that I encountered. On one end of the spectrum, you have these hard cases that are usually very good for very dedicated uses, but they're not universal. They don't fit with multiple uh, cameras, etc. And they're very pricey. They're heavy, etc. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what I call bags. Uh, these are plastic. You know, these are a bit like uh, taking pictures with oven mitts. Um, you know, they, they don't create a tactile-rich environment. They don't um, allow you to feel the camera in a nice way. But they're inexpensive. You know, they're cheap. And you kind of get what you pay for. And so Altex... When, when we created it, was invented to try to get the best of both worlds. We were trying to deliver professional results with the optical glass, with the universality, with the controllability of it at an affordable price, but with some of the benefits on both ends. So, you, so you'd seen people using carrier bags, basically, or, or something not a lot better than that, and you'd seen people struggling with these big boxes and, and you thought you could go in between the two and solve the problem exactly because for example there are surf photographers not only in the water but on boats on jet skis you know that wanted protection for their camera in those environments there are also people on stand-up uh, paddle uh, boards or kayaks or with other uses where a heavy case would not be the the solution 
but we also have sports photographers on the side of a soccer match or a football game where a plastic bag is not quite what they want. And if they want to take it from the field into the champagne room where the teams are celebrating with champagne or people uh, shooting uh, rock concerts where there's sweat, there's beer being spilled. And so we, we ended up discovering that the universality and the modularity of our system was appealing to all of these niches that weren't serviced before. Do you know, I, hadn't really, I mean, it had not occurred to me that um, being in a room full of people shouting, we are the champions, would be a, a use for a camera protection equipment. Well, and hearing you say that uh, reminds me of a, of a strange story that ties to, to your dark period comment. You know, I was at a trade event not too long ago, and I had an FBI agent walk up to me because I was wearing Altex gear, you know, like a T-shirt or something. And he said, you're from Altex. I want to speak to you. And he took out his badge from, from the FBI. And I was like, you know, I put my hands up in the air and I was like, uh, okay, how can I help you? And he said, you know, we've been using your gear in crime scene investigations because we don't want to introduce contaminants into a crime scene. We want to preserve the integrity of the scene. And we can protect the photographer with, uh, you know, vests and masks and gloves. But the camera can introduce contaminants into the scene itself. And we use your housings to protect it. And I wanted to talk to you about some other problems that we have. And so that conversation started and we've been servicing government agencies. We sell the military, the Marines, and we have all kinds of other uses that were born out of that. And recently with COVID-19, um, one of the things that I realized is that most people don't realize that their cell phones, their electronics, and a camera specifically with all of the metal and plastic hard surfaces can contaminate them. So if you're a photojournalist and you're in a hospital or if you're in a testing area and people are coughing, people are sneezing, contagion is in the air, even if you wear a mask, even if you're wearing gloves, when you go back home, that camera can be contaminated. So whether it's taking the card out, pressing the buttons to review your work, changing batteries, all of those things can contaminate you later. And we wanted to help people understand, especially now that we're seeing a lot of photojournalists and photographers that have COVID-19, uh, a, a, a photojournalist in New York City has recently died. He shot for the Knicks and the, and the Nets and a few others. And so we were trying to educate people on the importance of protecting themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, in, I was in Manhattan um, uh, just yesterday shooting for a, uh, a paper. And, um, you know, I, I took my ad text with me to, to, to cover up the camera, particularly after the conversation that we had about it last week. Um, and I thought it was such a strong message. I thought other people needed to hear it, but I covered up my camera as well as having my mask and gloves on. And and even when I got back, I, I took the system off. I put it in the in a in a in the in the tub of warm water, and I left it there for a while. 
and I went back in and cleaned it up. But it's a, it's a very strong message. And it was interesting about the guy, the, um, the sports photographer that died in New York. He was only 40-something, wasn't he 49 or something? Yeah. Yeah, he was in his forties, if not thirties. He may have been thirty-seven, but I I don't recall. It's um, it's getting a lot less funny, isn't it? I mean, a few weeks ago, I think Dan and I were both sort of quite enjoying the uh, prank on the subway with the uh, biohazard suits and stuff, and life seems a little bit different now. Right. Yeah, especially when you know someone. You know, we're we're getting to a point now where more and more of us are starting to be able to relate to a story either to someone you know or someone you know who has someone they know that is directly impacted by it. And and I was only going to suggest that we have put together uh, some videos that link directly back to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. So if you go to altex.com, O-U-T-E-X.com, and you search for COVID-19, or you go to the Altex YouTube channel, you can see lots of information on the product. We sell direct, you can purchase it there, but it also just help you on understanding how you can protect yourself. You don't have to use the product, but just be cognizant of it so that everybody is protected. What kind of devices can you get an Altex cover for? We have designed the system to be focused on photography and cinematography. So there's a lot of modularity in the system. And you can use things like triggers, lighting, uh, repeaters, battery grips, pistol grips. Yeah, all all of the components that are associated with uh, filmmaking and photo making are things that we're actively supporting or in the process of supporting. Uh, We're in active discussions, for example, to develop a cinema line, what I'm calling a cinema line, for for cameras like Red Digital Cinema, Blackmagic, etc. Because again, our housings already accommodate some of those cameras, but they physically have to fit, and there are other nuances that a cinema camera may have like a fan generation of heat and other engineering components that require different um, Altex uh, deliberation. And so we're working on all of that, but it's always something that we're working with our ambassador base to develop. And some of our patents, in fact, are a direct result of collaboration. I'll give you an example. We have something called a cable adapter, which enables tethering. And if you're trying to teach a class, it's great to be able to have your camera connected to a large display, to a computer, to a power source, etc. We have people doing documentary work on a glacier, and they want to be able to leave their camera attached to a tripod, attached to a power source for months at a time. And we have a waterproof tethering solution that was developed as a direct result of feedback from our customers. They came back to us and said, what about that? And we ended up solving that. That's cool. Fantastic. 
I mean, I was about to ask the question, but you went straight into the examples. That's uh, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, cameras that uh, breathe, so to speak, like the red. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a problem that uh, Durex, for example, wouldn't have to worry about quite so much. Right. I mean, the other the other, the other thing that I that I found useful and it was going back to the the, the heat disbursement was um, um, using it for protecting against condensation. It came very obvious to me in, uh, when I was in Alaska, probably about 11 degrees Celsius on the on the ground at the airport where we took off, and we went, was in a Cessna and we were flying to Hallow Bay. If if you want to know about Hallow Bay, watch the film The Grizzly Man because it was all filmed there about the the lunatic that managed to get to Hallow Bay and he lived there for uh, I think it was about 11 years every summer before he got eaten by a bear but anyway it's a really nice place you should go and you want us to be eaten by bears <laughs> you go and uh, not be eaten by a bear uh, hopefully with a guide or something it's very good but anyway so we, we, we took off from um, Homer in the uh, um, in the Kenai Fjords region and we got on the plane it was 11 degrees Celsius and when, when we when we when we took off we got to about 1,500 feet um, and there's, of course, six to eight of us tap, uh, packed in tight into this small little Tesla. And the condensation built up real quick and the temperature went up exponentially. Um, so while we were up there, it went to probably about 24 degrees Celsius in a, in a snap very, very quickly. Um, and um, on the way there, I didn't have my Artex on. I was going to put it on on the beach when I got there. And of course, I had some horrific problems with the camera. Um, but on the way back, I'd already had my Artex still on. Um, and I didn't get the problem, it eliminated it. And I thought, huh, you know, this has actually helped me combat some condensation, particularly on the sensor for the mirrorless camera. I've still got a little bit on the front, I needed to wipe, but that was no biggie. But it was the sensor that has the biggest issue with, with, the, with the getting the, the, the changing of the, um, uh, the temperature was so dramatic, but uh, it, it really helped. And it was, uh, it was a really good learning experience for me. So when I'm going off doing that kind of thing, I just puff a little bit more of air in give that extra bit of barrier between the camera and the uh and, and the and the and the ambient temperature so to speak um and i know it's not necessarily an advertised uh feature or benefit um i'm certainly sure jr will probably say yes it does this because it you know it, it just it just helped me you know it was great the the modularity of it is a bonus because it allows you to do some of the things that um that i was describing earlier and and that dan just alluded to which is for us to improve and innovate. It's a modular system, a bit like Legos, that you can build over time. So you can buy individual parts. You can buy the covers separate from the front glass, separate from a dome that you may use, separate from the pistol grip that you may use, separate from the tethering system. And so part of that uh, is its own beauty in that as your, as your needs grow, uh, you can get the, the parts you need and not have to reinvent the wheel and uh, re-spend on a completely new housing. But it's also beneficial to us because it allows us to then innovate and introduce new components that work, uh, that are backward compatible and work with the parts you already have so that over time, whether it is a replacement cover or a cover that supports tripod support now, you don't have to remake your purchase. Going back to when you when you went through the design phase and what challenges did you have in terms of getting the getting the build done? Did you have to 
nip off to China. How many iterations did you go through for getting to a commercial product? And, and, and then did you think about what the extra accessories that you could bring out later? Really, the, 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 the idea, the concept of Altex was born from an idea that my cousin, who was a co-founder of the company and who was a mechanical engineer, uh, had. And I come more from the commercial side, although I spent most of my career working in engineering with product development. And so we, we sort of used the, 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 the initial idea of creating a wetsuit for the camera uh, was born um, out of just sheer necessity for things like rain, mud, dirt, for portability and affordability. And then um, we, my, my cousin was born in Brazil and he resides in Brazil and he lives uh, you know, in the interior part of the country and he's constantly camping and hiking. And so he already lives the lifestyle. And as I indicated, I grew up swimming and surfing and always outdoors. We developed the initial prototypes ourselves. So as a mechanical engineer, he started working with the materials, with the parts. We then started procuring parts and components within the Americas, both in the United States and in Brazil. None of our products are made in China. We, you know, I, I have separate experiences working with Chinese manufacturing and with foreign manufacturing. And we wanted both for intellectual property reasons, for control reasons, for proximity and speed of innovation reasons, to maintain all of that in-house. And therefore, we maintain that within the Americas. He's still based in Brazil, and a lot of our manufacturing is still done there. But a lot of our innovation happens right here in Southern California, and we're constantly growing our base, purchasing materials from other parts of the world, including Germany, United States, and sometimes Asia. But all of the final assembly, the manufacturing is all done in the Americas. So how did you get to Kickstarter and how, how was that experience for you? Our first project was in 2013. We already had a bit of a base. Our original products were not transparent, but we had a hard a, a base of hardcore users, I would call them. So these are professional users that knew their camera very well and could sort of shoot blindly, right? Because they couldn't see once they put it inside. And the, the transparent material, as trivial as it may sound, took quite a bit of engineering to accomplish. Because again, we have people shooting under ice and we have uh, people shooting in the desert. And so there are people shooting at 100 degrees with an arid, dusty environment. And we have people under ice with gloves on in a very cold, uh, you know, fluid environment. And so we needed a material that could accommodate the tactile feedback and control that I alluded to earlier in those extremes. And we couldn't quite accomplish that with the original material. So we started working on a new material 
that we have today that's more silicone based, where our original materials were latex based. So there are a number of advantages to that. And right around that time, I discovered Kickstarter as a, as a uh, funding campaign. And I thought we would give it a go because it embodied a lot of the things that were true of us in a sense that we're a small company, you know, we're, we're an inventor's company and we, we didn't want to sell equity. We didn't want to necessarily go get a loan, but we thought that if we could pre-sell the product and therefore generate capital to fund the toolings required, the investments in engineering required to accelerate the process, it would be a great use of, of funding. And that's exactly what we did. In 2013, we, in essence, launched the transparent version of Altex through Kickstarter. We hit the, uh, the, uh, the minimum requirements, requirements very quickly. What, what was your target? Uh, we've done a few, we've done a couple since. I think our original target was something like 40 or 50,000 US dollars. And we hit that fairly quickly. Uh, you know, some of these tools alone cost that much, but that's why I use the word accelerate because again, we were already a company. Um, and so we didn't entirely fund everything out of that campaign, but we were funding some critical components that enable us to shorten the speed to, to market. And I think one of the problems that I found with Kickstarter in the past is that um, sometimes you look at it and you think these people are professional fundraisers. They're not a company. They just like building money, saying you're going to get this. Build it to a minimum. Um, I could mention um, uh, the there was a watch on there called the Omate. Um, it was the most horrific name for a watch because that, that sounds like a condom in in, in itself. Um, and it was another waterproof-based Android watch. And there was a, a video of a man getting out of the pool and then jiggling with his watch and bits and pieces. Um, and this was going back probably um, six years ago, maybe seven years ago. Um, and everyone thought, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But they smashed did, their did goal. Um, the product turned up late, of course, and it was horrific. It was, it was horrific. And it wasn't even waterproof. And they said, well, I didn't say it was waterproof. I just showed a video of me getting out of the water. They're like, hang on a minute. Um, and I think he had his, his backside sued um, a few times, I believe. I hope so. Was he arguing that it was waterproof if you can afford to buy another one? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mention that, Dan, because I, I agree. I think those uh, campaign or, or funding platforms have really changed over the years. And from my perspective, I've kind of abandoned them precisely for that reason. The latest campaign we did, what I realized is that they're no longer an invention and, and funding platform for new ideas. It's become more of a marketing platform. Right. That's what I was going to say. Companies use it to raise money, to pre-sell and, and, and frankly, a lot of people are using it to just try to get money and, and they don't really know what they're doing. And so I feel like it, it's a completely different platform now. And I, I went five or so years without doing it. And when we did our last one, it was almost like a, a completely different world. And we decided to cancel it. So within, I think, three or four days of starting the campaign... 
we canceled it because we realized that it was a completely different ball game. You know, it, it just it had moved on and it no longer met with our expectations of what we what it what we wanted it to be. Right. And do they keep a slice of the a, the slice of the money raised? They do. That that has never changed, and, and I think that that's fair. But the problem is, is that because there are so many third-party companies now that make it their profit center, it's nearly impossible to be hugely successful without them. And so the third-party agencies have become such a big component of it, it has changed. Let me, let me leave it at that because I don't want to badmouth it. I'm just saying... It's not what it used to be. You know, it's, it's serving a different purpose now. There are different parties involved. And it didn't meet my expectations and my criteria compared to what it used to do when it first started. Right. Would you do it again or are you kind of over it? Do you think if you needed a round of funding, would you go to an angel investor or would you go for a loan? What, what would you do, do you think? I don't know. You know, I'd never say never. I think we would, we're always considering and, and, and things move quickly. You know, I think on, in the social and digital space, things are always evolving. So I don't know the answer to that. We're always considering everything, uh, but we've been able to retain control by doing things our way. And we've also space them out so that we don't have to uh, get large infusions of cash at any given point in time. So we've tried to grow organically so that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. So we're, we're trying to always balance the speed of innovation with losing control and under-delivering against promises made. Which puts you in a position of relative financial stability against people who've grown too quickly. And- that's that's my goal, yeah. yeah. It's been interesting. A lot of the companies that have gone on Shark Tank in the US or Dragon's Den in the UK, um, you know, those companies are starting to find the pinch because they've grown so quick. Right. And, and look, like I said before, you know, This business was born from passion and a hobby, but because I had a professional career in parallel to this prior to the founding of the company, it gave me the benefit of of also having some relevant experience. You know, I worked in Silicon Valley. Um, I've taken or have helped take a company public or been part of a company that went pre-IPO through the IPO, being publicly listed. I had helped raise money for startup companies before. And so I I do have some relevant experience. Um, You know, I I think you're absolutely right, Dan. You have to look at what makes sense. And, you know, like I I was uh, suggested multiple times on going on Shark Tank. And I kept saying, no, no, I don't want to. Because that's the point. I don't want to give 50 or 80% of the company away for people that have great experience and great scalability. But I also recognize that Altex is not necessarily a cell phone or a GoPro. It's more of a niche. It's for photographers that are using a, you know, different lenses that are using a more professional camera that are making photography a bigger part of their uh, career or interest or hobby than the average GoPro slash cell phone user. Yeah. Now, the only other thing, the only benefit you could do by going on to 
onto Shark Tank is use it as a marketing tool and just reject all the offers. I, I thought about that. <laughs> just, and just say no to everything and say, by the way, com and walk out. I, I won't lie. The, the thought occurred to me, but I just felt that I couldn't do it. You know, I, I just couldn't do that in good conscience. For, forgive me. I've never seen, I've never seen Shark Tank, but is it one of those shows where when they're picking the people who they're going to have on, the producers choose people who have a, a bit of a thing? You know, do they shouty or they represent no. some sort of obscure group? Are they are they normal people? Yeah, it's exactly the same as Dragons Den. Exactly the same format, just with a different name and different different. I was I was going to say because otherwise JR just seems a bit too reasonable to be allowed on a show like. This. So, I I was actually all happy to skip past the news because all of the news I've heard about has been, well. COVID related um, but Dan you did spot a few things yeah um, stories about a 2016 Mashable post um, a female photographer had her picture embedded from Instagram and put on this Mashable story so uh, the lady photographer in question went off and tried to sue them but it was found out that the, the judge pointed out that the uh, license that which she agreed to when she signed up for Instagram is a is a transferable sub license for people to embed pictures on their websites even if it's not hosted there that i mean that's that standard little box isn't it that you see with an instagram logo and lots of blog posts and news stories you read it's a standard embed tool in all of the writing tools you know wordpress whatever right and she said that you know it was uh, it was embedded on their website but in actual fact the image isn't hosted there either so not only had she signed her life away to uh, Instagram in the first instance, she'd then gone off and said, OK, um, uh, I'm now going to try and sue everybody because they've got using my picture. And I think it's one of the biggest problems with, you know, people ticking the I agree to everything box. But particularly with Instagram, where people are relying on uh, relying on income from pictures. And I always say, if you think that picture is going to be commercially viable at some point, don't put it on Instagram. Don't put it on Facebook and probably don't put it on Twitter or any other social media platform either. Um, so it, it was a very interesting story to me. And it was, I'm glad the co- I feel sorry for the photographer because, you know, I don't think she, oops, my computer just bleeped at me. Um, you know, I do feel sorry for her to some extent, but I mean, at the same time, you can't just go blindly agreeing to clicking on bits and pieces and then expecting no blowback to come on it when you haven't checked the terms and conditions in the first place either. It's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, how do you feel about the fact that uh, many would argue you sort of have to put stuff on Instagram if you're going to get found, discovered, or you know, around the place? I think I think it really it really depends on what you're what you're looking for and where you think you're going to get your clients. Um, I get very little work out of Instagram anyway. Um, I get very little very little work out of Facebook. Oh, it's never direct, is it? That's the problem with these things. Well, that's it. I mean, if, if someone wants to be a pure influencer and that's all they want to do. Um, you know, trying to find your voice in that crowd is going to be fairly difficult. And and if you're an influencer to a certain extent, are you really going to give a shit if your blog posts or your your, your Instagram posts are shared out? You're probably probably going to want to encourage it. But if you're if you're working in the commercial space, why would you want to put your all your stuff out there anyway? It's, it's a, I mean, that's the question: is why why is she putting it there in the first place? Because that you know, those embed boxes they always have a subscription link, so right. she is getting an advert on somebody else's platform 
does make you wonder why so upset. And if she's particular, if, if she's really offended by it, she can just delete the picture from the feed, and then it'll disappear. You know, it'll become a broken link, won't it? Right. And this was up on uh, the Verge on the fourteenth of April, so I'm, I'm assuming it's relatively new. Um, yeah. Two days wondered, ago, as we talked. Yeah, I wondered if yeah, I wondered if how many photographers are looking at that, thinking, "Oh shit, maybe I shouldn't put my stuff up there." It's a, uh, it's it's an interesting case. Um, you know, I I talk to a lot of photographers, as you can imagine, and a lot of our photographers are dealing with issues like this, and and so I thought I'd share the perspective that I've heard over and over, and you guys know better than I do, but what what I hear sounds like a good strategy is that they will edit and post edit shots specifically for digital and sometimes even more granularly than that so that the images that do get posted have things like uh you know marks watermarks or their logo or they have a low enough resolution so that when they are shared or if they are published in any way, they are only a fraction of what the client would expect or want or what a commercial viability would call for. And so that somewhat insulates them because I, I, I agree with Dan's point and that if you can separate them and not post them, period, makes a ton of sense. But for cases where you are trying to thread that needle of both promoting your work and collecting for it, um, sometimes I think post-editing of the picture for specific uses and using layers like watermarks uh, can be useful. Yeah, I mean, I, I hide my, my watermarks, so it's fairly difficult for the naked eye. And a lot of a lot of people um, don't realize, you know, there's there's a, a lot of compression that goes on on Instagram anyway. However, some of the pictures can be usable if they're if they're if they're posted up at a, a certain resolution. But you know, I, I said I wouldn't mention it, but in the book I did about Instagram, not a large book, and it features the work of fifty or so photographers, including Dan M. Lee, and they were very upset with the, the suggestion that we use the images from Instagram at the highest resolution, uh, which even though, to be honest, would have printed perfectly adequately at the size the book is, just that the designers were offended by the idea of seeing an image that wasn't 300 ppi. And, and you know, yes, the, the more subtle thing of the, the JPEG quality, which is sort of noticeably lower. It's a, it's a problem we've been encountering recently, actually, because... Um, uh, last episode of this podcast um, with Tanya Nagar and myself, we were talking about the uh, COVID street photography project we've set up, which um, which we've launched on Instagram as at COVID street. And in that, we've got photographers from around the world. Um, it's coming up on our, our month anniversary, and we have well over 600 followers as we go, and at least 30 photographers I think you know covering pretty much every country you can think of and as you can imagine different ones have different views on what sort of image they will supply us before we can process it and get it up onto the feed and try and get it relatively consistent are you going to turn that into a book 
fighting chance. Yeah, the plan obviously is to turn it into a book. Uh, that does not mean I want to upload the highest resolution onto Instagram, right. uh, but it does mean uh, that I am developing my own personal opinions on the sort of person who will put a quotes watermark close quotes in full font in the middle of the image because uh, you know that's just that's not good enough to go on their feed either because then you're just in this case though we're trying to raise money for we have managed to talk for a surprisingly long time um i think this is possible because i've spent at least some of the time here sort of imagining lovely holidays on greek islands with my camera as we all should at some point in the future um yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, JR definitely likes that message. It's good. My only request uh, of you um check the show notes. Um please if you haven't already do follow us on uh, the Covid Street account. Um you'll find a link in the show. Uh Dan, is there anything you want to promote? That's it. I'm just going to try and get you to follow an Instagram account. Dan, however, rather more generously, has a book to give away. Yep. If you would like to win a copy of my book Creative Photography the Professional Edge um then uh if you could go to notthegear.com and put your email address in in the next uh, month or so we will do a draw um and then we will send a copy out to the winner um just make sure you follow uh, not the gear on on uh, twitter i believe there's an account there and there's one on instagram as well um uh, it's only valid for uk and us listeners if you're outside of those geo regions i'm sorry you're out of luck um, I will send you a nice thank you message anyway. Um, but if you could uh, go there, um, enter your email address, sign up for the um, uh, the newsletter, and uh, we'll do a draw maybe this time next month. Yeah, so good luck. So swipe up on your phone or tap um, the button to read the show notes, and there'll be a link in there. All right. In that case, I think we should uh, turn to our guest, JR, to who I have not given a surname to. Yeah, so I wanted to thank you, Adam, and Dan, for having me on. People can log on to outex.com. That's O-U-T-E-X.com. All the information you need about the product, how it works, is there. I encourage listeners to explore the site. There are pages on ambassadors, professional photographers like Dan and many others in multiple categories, some of which I mentioned on the show today, uh, and also links to reviews, uh, news, uh, unique uses of the product, and social media like Instagram, etc. That's great. Um, And obviously, we're going to put all of those uh, right in the show notes as well, so you can see all the spellings, click straight through um, and, and get reading. Brilliant. Thanks very much for letting us uh, visit your ears at safe and entirely hygienic distance during these times. And let's hope that we're all free soon. Uh, stay safe until next time. Hi, this is Adam quickly wearing my producer hat to introduce the outtake this week, which is how I first attempted to sign off the show. Okay, thanks very much for joining us and uh, allowing us to come in, uh, come into your ears in a tuck. Sorry, this is just, this is for Dan. (laughs) You can look at him. You're going with the sexual innuendo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was brilliant. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.